This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello, I'm Jonathan Dimbleby. Thanks for taking the time to download this edition of Any Questions from BBC Radio 4. Welcome to Carlisle and to the University of Cumbria, which is one of the youngest in the land. Formed in 2007, it has a history, though, that dates back almost 200 years. Today, it provides a very wide range of courses in health and education and the arts, in which discipline it offers a course in Romanticism and the English Lakes. What a refreshing prospect that must be. On our panel here in the Stanix Theatre, Therese Coffey is the government's environment minister responsible for the purge on waste and, among other things, for championing the 5P plastic bag charge. Andy MacDonald, the former solicitor who ran his firm's serious injuries unit for Cumbria and specialised in military claims for members of the British Armed Services. He is now Shadow Transport Secretary. Lena Moran is the first MP of Palestinian Heritage. Elected in 2017, she speaks for the Lib Dems on education. She's lived in many countries, among them Belgium, Greece, Ethiopia, Jamaica and Jordan. She's not in any of those as far as I know, but she's gone AWOL, which is saying, in fact, that she's on a train, had a bit of a problem with getting here, and she's on her mobile phone, I hope, and will be with us soon. Are you there, Leila? I am there. I can hear you. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Excellent. I'm we'll not s- AWOL. I'm right with you. <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see you soon. Ian Dale is a prolific broadcaster, blogger, and political commentator. He has regular programmes on LBC and CNN. He has a book club podcast, a weekly diary for Conservative Home website, and he writes books. He's got two of them on the go at the moment. One of them, engagingly, is about optimism. Our panel. <laughs> and we'll go to our first question, please. Fiona Goldie. Given today's horrific news from Christchurch, New Zealand, when will this government and MPs begin to take the issue of far-right hate seriously? Far-right hate crime. When will the government take it seriously? 49 people we know to have been killed in two mosques in Christchurch. Uh, one person's been charged. He filmed himself uh, committing those atrocities. And uh, three others have been detained. Ian Dale. Um, I hope they're taking it seriously now because it is becoming a real issue. Now, terrorism comes in many forms. Those of us of a certain age, our first introduction to terrorism was IRA terrorism. Then, of course, um, we have Islamicist terrorism. Now we have far-right terrorism. Uh, We all remember Anders Breivik in Norway. The murder of Joe Cox was committed by someone from the extreme right. Then the Finsbury Park Mosque attack. And now this, and this, I think because we all have some sort of connection with New Zealand, we all feel this very deeply in this country. 49 innocent people lost their lives today purely because they went to worship their God. Now, um, there is a rise of far-right extremism in this country, and if people are on the right and try to deny it, they aren't looking at the statistics. Um, In 2016 to 2018, there was a 40% rise in religious-based hate crime in this country. 52% of that was against Muslims. And I'm very disappointed today that a lot of the debate on social media 
has not been how to fight far-right extremism. It's been as to whether Islamophobia is even a word. We all know what we mean by Islamophobia, and we don't need to go to a dictionary to understand what it means. We all know what we mean by anti-Semitism. And yet some people don't seem to accept that it even exists. By which they want people to draw what inference? Well, I think they say, well, a phobia is an irrational hatred, so therefore it's not an irrational hatred of Islam. Now, we, we can sort of go, go around all the words as much as we like, but we know what the problem is, and the people that don't understand what Islamophobia means are the very people that I would say are susceptible to a lot of these views. And someone on Twitter said today that just if we could just grasp the simple concept that just because someone has a different colour skin, prays to a different god, or speaks a different language, doesn't make them your enemy, the world would be a better place. Andy MacDonald. Um, yeah, I think Islamophobia is uh, a reality. Um, sadly, there's far too many people who are in denial about it, and I agree with every word that Ian's said. There's, there's almost a, an attitude abroad that uh, it's, it's, you're either in denial about it or it's actually justifiable uh, commentary about insulting an entire religion. And some of the uh, outpourings on Twitter have been exactly the right responses of sheer horror and revulsion at such a, a tragic event. And it's beyond, it's beyond contemplation uh, and imagining just the, the suffering that's gone on in, in New Zealand. Uh, but sadly, there's too many people who are commenting in a, in a very, very dangerous way. And there's a senator in Australia uh, uh, who's spoken out today who's saying that people who are going to be wringing their hands and complaining about this are actually in denial about the true nature of the cause, which was uh, 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 unrestrained immigration and a, and a foreign peril. And it's, it, it's some terrible, terrible things are being said. But I think we've got to look closer to home as well and look at some of the writings that take place. It's not just on social media. It's in our mainstream media where people are writing in certain journals uh, in, with untrammeled prejudice and bile directed to people of the Islamic faith, uh, British citizens uh, in, included. And this is just totally and utterly unacceptable. But it seems to have got into the box of it's okay to say this. Uh, and to think for one minute that people deny it exists when most of us come across it very, very regularly indeed. And it's, a, it's going deep-rooted. And we've got to stand up and, and shout it out and call it out for what it is. This is a prejudice that we simply cannot allow to go unchallenged. And the sooner we eradicate it from our, our national life and our international life, the better. Otherwise, these things will happen yet again, I regret to say. Andy McDonald, those who write in the way that you've described and write in sometimes very ugly terms and prejudicial terms, clearly, however, are not the same individuals who would commit the kind of atrocity that occurred in Christchurch. Are you saying that you think there is some kind of linkage between their writings and the uh, um, disordered, demented behaviour of the people like this person who is going to be charged very probably with this uh, crime. I think undoubtedly so. If people who are, are writing for what are otherwise respected 
um, uh, publications uh, and which have wide circulation. Uh, and there are many people who have been on panels such as these who have held those views and have written articles in those terms. I think they've got to look at themselves in the mirror today and say what contribution do they make in fomenting that level of antagonism and prejudice and discrimination against people. They are playing a very, very active role in that and I think they've got to question how they behave and the sorts of languages that they indulge in. And and I really do urge them to think very carefully about this because they are part of the issue. I'm not saying for one minute that they would sanction or approve such horrific events, but it's the sort of environment that they establish of acceptable discrimination or denial of the problem of Islamophobia. And those are the things that have got to be addressed. Leila Moran. Hello, Leila, are you there? Not quite. I'll come back to you if we can. Um, Therese Coffey. Well, Fiona, I think the first thing is to say that my extreme sympathy and condolences are with the people in New Zealand who suffered this terrorist tragedy today, not only their friends and family, but, of course, the people who are still wounded. And I know that the government has already extended uh, cooperation if the New Zealand authorities would like to take advantage of that in terms of the intelligence that we may have on on wider other issues, given that this particular person who seems to have orchestrated this was not on, on a watch list. But I think it's fair to say that we need to make sure that when we talk about things like the Prevent Programme as part of uh, different things, a lot of people just think about it, about young people going out uh, to be uh, Daesh fighters. And actually, uh, a lot of work has been done to update the Prevent Programme. The Hate Crime Action Plan uh, is a recent uh, thing that we've innovated to make sure it does tackle people on the far right who are doing these awful things in this country as well. So whether it's about Islamophobia, which is horrendous, whether it's about anti-Semitism, absolutely horrendous, it actually needs to be stamped out. And in fact, the police record and hate crimes are now being disaggregated by faith to make sure that that is also seen as as an extra thing when it comes to sentencing as well. And we really need to work together to stamp out this terrible activity. And I'm very conscious that people think, as I say, uh, um, this isn't solely about uh, 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 extremes of one or another, but even our own armed forces, we have taken soldiers to court um, who have been found to be hiding bombs and making bombs and similar. So there are things where we have to, our intelligence forces are very much alive and alert to a lot of the crises that may feel. But I think the Prevent Programme, the Hate Crime Action Plan, is a really important uh, way Fiona of Fiona Goldie it. asked... In, a, in what you might regard as a provocative way, when will government MPs take the issue hate crime seriously? You're saying that the government, at least, is doing everything that is possible to do to confront this uh, disgusting threat. Well, I believe it is. And uh, whether it's about, um, I think in particular, uh, on a political level, we're trying to do our best when, as a Conservative Party when people bring to the attention of our party leadership issues of Islamophobia. We suspend people straight away. I know in my own uh, part of the country, we got, uh, a, a councillor was removed from the party was, uh, and was not allowed to stand again as a Conservative. Uh, we know that Labour's having its challenges with anti-Semitism. And, uh, do you accept that Labour say, is doing everything... Possibly, I will well, come back. We don't want to get into to this judge. in huge detail, but do you accept that the Labour is doing everything possible, whether successfully as yet or not? It's not my political party, so I'll leave it to others to judge, but it was, I think, uh, Luciana Berger and Chukaramuna suggesting 
there was racist elements in there in the party. I know that Labour are trying to tackle this, but I'll leave it to other people to judge on whether they think they're really being effective in that element. A, a quick response to this. We've got a number of tweets here. There's one of them that may well fall into the category, as uh, for some people, as described by Andy McDonald, someone calling themselves um, Devon Locke. Obviously, the far right is a reaction. Didn't see any before Islam went on the rampant. I think that person meant probably rampage. That's, I mean, that linkage is a... How do you interpret that linkage that that individual makes? Because I guess that's the kind of stuff that we're talking about, what Ian Dale was talking about. I think we've seen extremist uh, elements of terrorism and kind of hooliganism in our own country. The BNP got into power in places a few years ago. Thankfully, they've largely gone. So um, I think there's, there were reactions for different things. We, but I just want just to make it clear that the bit. government is not just focused, uh, as say, on the Prevent programme about the people potentially undertaking terrorism in other countries uh, and leaving this country to go there. It is very focused on the activities in this country as well. On, on the Prevent programme, I think I'm right in saying that in the last figures that were released, more people were referred to that being feared to be on the extreme right yeah. than being extreme Islamists. So, I mean, that tells you where we are. Yeah. I'm going to bring in, who I think is with us now, Leila, Leila yeah. Moran. Hi. Um, look, I, I was crying this morning. Whenever I hear stories of children, women, going about their normal lives, being shot, it's just, it's just atrocious. And it makes you think about back home. And I know that in my constituency of Oxford and Abingdon, one of the mosques has now upped its security system today. So it really does feel very real. But then I think about, well, why is this happening? Why does this ever happen at all? And we have to also admit that this sort of extreme right, far right extremism seems to be, in some cases, linked to children who are left behind. I'm an education spokesperson. I look at this in schools. Schools have a duty under the prevent strategy, fine. But actually, it's also the case that a third of children who leave school don't even have a pass in maths and English in this country. There is something fundamentally wrong about our system. We need to properly fund our schools. We need to properly fund our local authorities. And if we did that, then maybe we'd catch some of these kids before they got to the point where they felt that it would be okay to go and do something as atrocious as what happened today. Leila, thank you. I want to just something that, that both several of you have talked about on the panel so far. Um, you take UKIP and UKIP's mm. leader, who is accused by some of fanning the flames of Islamophobia. Um, and, but he leads a political party. There are many people who are clearly sympathetic to UKIP around the, the country, said that the Conservative Party fears the rise of, of, of UKIP. You observe this as, as someone who is of a, a small-c conservative instinct, Ian Dale. How do you read that? Well, UKIP was a once respectable political party. Um, it's a party I could have considered voting for. Um, I would rather vote for Green than vote UKIP now, which tells you all you need to know in, in some ways. Look, Gerard Batten has led UKIP to becoming an Islamophobic party. 
And I think that's an absolute disgrace because now, with the, I'm sure we'll come on to this in a moment when we're talking about Brexit, but now UKIP ought to be the party that people who are disillusioned with the Conservative government are turning to, but they won't turn to it because they see it now as a far-right, Islamophobic, uh, racist party, and I'm afraid that's what it's become. And I do think that all of us in the media have a responsibility to treat UKIP in that way. I was appalled to see Gerard Batten being interviewed on the BBC News Channel, almost as if he was a respectable mm. politician yesterday. I won't have him on my programme on LBC because he, he has these Islamophobic views. I won't have Tommy Robinson on my programme. And just by saying that now, I know what abuse I'm going to get on yeah. Twitter over the next 24 hours, and it won't be pretty, ladies and gentlemen. Very briefly, if you were just to come back to Andy MacDonald on the question about Labour Party and, 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 and fighting... Uh, extremism. You are doing everything that is possible. Absolutely, and, and, and not only that. Whilst the instances of uh, of anti-Semitism are, are restricted, thankfully, to a very tiny proportion of what is a huge membership of over half a million, we accept it for what it is. That it, it, we don't. We're not in denial about it, and we will deal with it. And we are doing everything in our power to eradicate it. Uh, from a movement, we have an absolute zero tolerance. What I would, I, I think that's how we should approach it. But in, in terms of Islamophobia, there's a different attitude to it. It's almost casualized, as if it's acceptable. And Baroness Vazi has spoken out very uh, loudly and long about that being uh, uh, rife in the Conservative Party. And I just would urge uh, colleagues across the uh, across the, the house to take that seriously and, and root it out because at the moment not enough is being done. Responsibility rests with politicians, responsibility rests with the media as well to express themselves in appropriate terms because this othering and scapegoating of others is disastrous for a cohesive society. Very, very briefly on that because the question... The question was put to the MPs and the government... Um, Baroness Vazi was driven to some very strong language as a former chair of the party about the Tory party's tolerance of Islamophobia, its resistance to confronting Islamophobia. You have to take her, um, herself from an ethnic minority background very seriously, do you not? Well, indeed, and uh, as I said earlier, when this is brought to the attention of the party, I believe it gets dealt with. And I gave an example in uh, my own area in Suffolk where that had happened. And uh, I think it's fair to say uh, the Conservatives had the first ever Muslim woman minister in the House of Commons. I think possibly the first Muslim um, minister being Baroness Farsi in the House of Lords. And it's not a case of uh, that's uh, systemic in our party. Uh, and when it's brought to our attention, we will immediately suspend people. We need to tackle this at all sources. You will doubtless have thoughts about the implications of what happened in Christchurch in the terms it's been discussed here. If so, Anita Anand will be waiting for your call after the Saturday broadcast of this programme in any answers. The number is 03700 100 444. The line's open at 12.30. Email as any.answers at bbc.co.uk. Tweet hashtag BBCAQ. And you can follow us at BBC Politics. Could we please go to our next? Tim Backshall. Albert Einstein said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Should Theresa May pay heed to that warning? 
Prime Minister's Brexit deal has so far been rejected twice by huge majorities in Parliament. Um, with us now in this theatre, Leila Moran. Hello. As a point of order, I also quoted that Einstein quote and was royally slapped down on Twitter because apparently he's alleged to have said it and never did. But that doesn't stop it from being true. <laughs> um, and, and we've got this bizarre situation where uh, third time round next week, we hear, um, because, you know, we'd need to go there again. I felt like there was a sense of hope at the end of this week. You know, we... we voted down her deal, we then took no deal off the table and then we voted for an extension and then I feel like, why are we going back to this deal again next week? It's utterly extraordinary. Um, and, but it does leave us, it begs a bigger question, which is what next? You know, what, how are we going to get through this? Because is there a chance she's going to get this through? We know that the DUP have been in talks again. Lord knows how much more money is being thrown in that direction. I think it's, it's atrocious and frankly a bribe. Um, but is it going to work? Because she's a hung parliament. I was a elected in 2017, um, overturned a large conservative majority on the back of fighting Brexit. And so I will maintain doing what my constituents want me to do, which is to try and stay in the European Union. We think that the people's vote is the way to do that. And I know, and I... I really appreciate that there are people out there going, really, what? But it remains a way out. There is only, I think, one way this is going to go. And no deal is not acceptable. We have to admit that we, if we want a country that's going to be economically viable, if we want a country that's not going to be hurt by this process, and most people, I don't think, voted that. And certainly in my constituency, they did not. We need to find a way of doing this properly. And I think the way we do that is to go back to the people. I see nothing wrong with more democracy. More democracy is not less democracy. It's just more democracy. And frankly, in this situation, we need to find a way out. Please, God, can we just make this stop? And that's the way to do it. As I frequently feel obliged to do, the audiences for any questions are self-selecting and come because they, they want to put themselves through the mill at any questions. Um, 60% of those in Carlisle voted leave in the vote. 60% of the votes leave. Um, Therese Coffey. 2016, it's fair to say it was a close result, but it was decisive. 1.3 million more people voted for the UK to leave the European Union. And that is what this government, and up until recently, Parliament has set out to achieve, to leave the European Union respecting the result. And I think uh, it's fair to say that both uh, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party both stood on a manifesto saying that they would respect the result. And the share of the vote for those uh, two parties went up, uh, and uh, I believe that we should do that. Now, in terms of the way forward, I think Leila's just referred to a second referendum. Well, one vote that was exceptionally decisive the other day in Parliament just yesterday was that over half of Parliament voted absolutely against the second referendum. 334 people uh, voted against it. So that was uh, a very clear message there. I think what is... It's kind of almost make, it is make up your mind time on elements of this. It's very clear the Labour Party wants a general election. The SNP do not want to leave, so they will keep voting until they think they can get their general election. Isn't it a bit rum, frankly, for you to say it's make up your mind time when the cabinet can't make up its collective mind? Actually, 
Actually, Jonathan, I think you'll find that the Cabinet and the Government are very much united. Oh. They want... <laughs> right? They're united. No, 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 no. They are united. They are united. They are united in saying that they want to leave the European Union, but with a deal. What I accept is that there are people, cabinet members and other ministers and other backbenchers who are clear that they do not want to leave without a deal. And that is, uh, I'm conscious of that as well. But nevertheless, it is still the policy of this government to leave the European Union with a deal. We have the DUP saying they want to leave with a deal as well. So um, I still think a deal is possible. I think there are some people who uh, um, uh, potentially uh, may change their minds because they are concerned that the majority in Parliament are actually trying to frustrate the will of the people that was expressed in 2016. I think that would be very damaging for democracy. How damaging, if at all, for democracy is the fact that the Brexit secretary spoke with some passion on behalf of the government in favour of Theresa May's urge to extend the deadline up until June and then walked into the division lobbies and voted against the stand he'd just taken. Well, uh, can you think of that ever happening in the past? I think uh, it's uh, a case that uh, it was deemed what's... Along with three other ministers, uh, incidentally, cabinet ministers. Well, I think there was uh, more than three other cabinet ministers. Um, I know some of my colleagues decided to take the view uh, yesterday in, in what we consider to be a free vote to say they don't want to extend leaving the European Union. They believe that gives another reason for delay, another reason of trying to frustrate the will of the people. So this was an opportunity for many people yesterday to say, we believe that we should respect the result and go on the 29th. I voted for the motion because I believe that we can still get a deal and I think we need some more time to get that legislation through. Forgive me, Minister. You've made as good a fist of it as you can. But people (laughs) listening to this, and you're smiling as I say that, people listening to this will, will think this is a shambles. This is a government in complete chaos. Well. And, and, and just to finish the point, uh, that they may think, listeners may think, that Theresa May may not have lost her own plot, but she's in a different play from the play that everyone else in Parliament's in. <laughs> well, I... Um, and has no influence or power left. One of my good friends in Parliament did resign as a minister because she voted against the government. And that is the usual practice of what happens. This is one of the most challenging times, I think, for our parliament. I've never experienced anything like it before. And I think perhaps the only recent element of where a situation really divided parliament, actually divided the country, and that was the financial crisis and how we should respond to it. Um, This, I think, is even more significant than that. Uh, the nation is divided. We do need to come together to heal. That is not going to happen for some time yet. But I think that we do need to respect the result of the referendum rather than trying to deny people the benefit of the vote that we said that we would take, uh, take their view on. And Parliament voted to leave the European Union in an act of Parliament. Andy MacDonald, should Theresa May pay heed to the warning allegedly made, but not apparently made, by Albert Einstein about insanity? Well, I think she, she should. And we're getting into a situation where next week, if this comes back again, uh, it's now got its own sort of hashtag, MV3, Meaningful, meaningful Vote 3. Um, this is a government without any leadership. And we feel as if it's a country that's out of control now uh, because we've, we've come back to this issue time and time again the, the, the will of the, uh, the House of Commons has been very clear 
on a number of occasions and Theresa May returns to the dispatch box and says the same thing over and over again. Uh, I mean, everybody is fed up of this. We've got to get through it, but it's, it's the how we do that. And, you know, this is the most divisive issue. Families are, di- are divided. Towns and cities are divided. Parties are, are divided. We have got to find a way of bringing our country together. That's absolutely critical. And find a way through this. There's got to be alternatives considered. Now, hitherto, Theresa May has been absolutely resolute. It's her way or the highway. This, the only deal in town, she said to us time and time again. And she said that you know th- there is no way that this could be extended. We could not reject no deal. That has been done. So she's got to accept the reality of the situation she is rather than continuing in this refusal to accept what is in front of her. So we've got to find a way, reaching across the House, to find a solution that will unite the, or re- find for, a consensus me, within the House of Commons and one that would appeal to the nation as a whole. And for, it forgive is me, the Andy, most you're difficult sa- job. You're, you're sounding immensely holier than thou. If you look at the way, <laughs> if you look at the way that your leader has repeated week after week the same mantra and charging Theresa May with all kinds of uh, crimes against humanity in political terms, and then saying, "Oh yeah, we've got to reach across the house." I mean, it's like reaching across the sticks. Well, no, Jonathan, there there is an appetite uh, for leaving the European Union on terms that are not going to ruin our economy. That's absolutely critical. And the way this government are going about it, it's leave the European Union and to hell with the uh, the economy. We have heard uh, Boris Johnson describe business in the most abusive terms. What way is that to approach this most serious of issues where we don't care about the consequences? We should care very much about the consequences of this action. And given given that, and given the Chancellor of the Exchequer, not so much the Prime Minister, the Chancellor of the Exchequer said you've got to reach across the House, that suggests compromise Uh and give to avoid um, the worst outcome. What compromise beyond the repeated statements we've had from your leader, is Labour well, willing to make? You, you say, sir, Jonathan, the, uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer was on the radio just a few short days ago and actually appealing uh, to, to, to embrace the, the very proposal the Labour Party had put. I could hear, hear that in the, in the words that he was using. There is an opportunity to say, yes, we leave, but we, the single market and the customs union relationship are absolutely critical, and we've got to maintain that sort of flow. Our goods have got to keep coming through our roll-on, roll-off ports for our just-in-time industrial base. Without it, we are in re- real, real trouble. Now, you're a Labour MP with a constituency that voted leave, mm. would, would Labour leave voters regard remaining inside the customs union in the single market with, you, with, with freedom of movement as what they voted for? Not one person, when I knocked on doors up and down the land, ever mentioned the issue of single market customs union. It was either leave or remain. It was expressed in those binary terms. There was never, ever a discussion. And I, I, I'm absolutely convinced in my part of the world, in the, in the northeastern Cumbria, the job 
jobs that are dependent upon exporting are absolutely on the line now. And we see business decision after business decision all blamed on things other than Brexit. So when Jaguar Land Rover reduced their hours and laid people off, when Nissan starts saying they're not going to be building the Infinity and the X-Trail, it's nothing to do with Brexit. Come on, we've got to to absolutely wake up and and, and recognise that these are at play and the damage caused to our communities, the the, the supply chain that's dependent upon uh, the labour forces in those communities will be absolutely decimated if we do this in the wrong way, which is exactly what Theresa May is proposing. Ian Dale, you you are both engaged politically, but you're also a commentator. Can you answer, can you uh, offer an interpretation of the question in terms of how Theresa May may or may not pay heed to that warning or should or should not? Well, I haven't been involved in active party politics for nine years, but I want to put in context what I'm about to say. Um, Margaret Thatcher inspired me to join the Conservative Party when I was 16 years old. I stood as a... I stood... (laughs) I never thought I'd get a clap for that. Um, I there was, stood there was really more than clap. one clap. Come, Come on. I, I, Several. I stood as a parliamentary candidate for the Conservatives in 2005, but the electorate fought back. Um, <laughs> I thought Theresa May was the woman to take us through Brexit. This is one of the most shambolic governments this country has ever seen. It almost rivals Lord North's administration when he lost America for us in the 1780s. Um, Stephen, I mean, you already mentioned Stephen Barclay, the, the Brexit secretary, who wound up the debate uh, yesterday and then voted against his own government. But even worse than that, you had four cabinet ministers, cabinet ministers, Greg Clark, Amber Rudd, David Gork, David Mundell, and then eight junior ministers and two PPSs who abstained on a piece of government ledger or government motion. And there was, if you do that as a minister, you have to resign or you should be sacked. Because if that doesn't happen, that effectively means collective responsibility in the government is dead. It means effective whipping is dead. And it effectively means that this government is dead, I'm afraid. <laughs> now, so, uh, uh, Ian, 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 just... Uh, I'm just thinking partly of time. Address my yourself. Peroration. Yeah, I know you were, and that's why I was trying to suspend, suspend it. <laughs> can you can you can you cut to this particular chase? We know she's going to bring it back. Is she sensible to bring it back? Has she got a cat in hell's chance or a good chance of getting it through? Well, this is the problem for uh, the the harder Brexit Conservative MPs. When this deal was announced in November. I was on the record as saying that I thought it was so bad that I'd rather remain in the EU. But if you believe in Brexit, you, you have to believe that we should leave on March the 29th, as the government has said repeatedly, as Theresa May has repeatedly said all along, one of her famous red lines, which she seems to be quite good at breaking. If we don't leave on the 29th of March, there is a real chance now, and I would put it at 50-50, that we won't leave at all. And the, the, the prospects of that happening and the consequences for our democracy, I, I can barely think of. I mean, they're going to be terrible if that happens. So I reluctantly come to the conclusion that if I was an MP now, I would support her deal. But I would do it very reluctantly because I would have been driven to do it because of this project fear, which Ollie Robbins, her advisor, outlined in his barroom chat on February the 12th in Brussels. And what he said then is now coming true. He said, well, we'll threaten them with a two-year extension period because then there could be another referendum and Brexit might not happen. So they'll all whip into line in the end. 
And that's probably, I suspect, what is going to happen. But what a way to run a government. I don't accept. Brexit is difficult, but I'm afraid I don't accept that the government is not getting on with other elements of what we're doing. A lot that featured in the spring statement on Wednesday. You're elements not going to hold, it, climate, hold it, Therese. You might have a chance. And the investment Therese, in Carlisle. Therese, Therese, I know you won't get an investment in Carlisle. Of course you do. That's yeah. we're in Carlisle. But uh, you'll just hold it for a bit because okay. then you may have an opportunity. I don't know. You don't know what the questions are, so I can't. Very briefly on this because you had a slightly shorter go. Leila Moran. No, thank you. I mean, I, I actually completely agree with Ian to oh a degree. Um, <laughs> and to a degree, to a degree. You'll never become leader of the Liberal Democrats if you say that. (laughs) He's naughty, isn't he? No, (laughs) listen, listen, but uh, we have to get through this somehow, and it may well end end up, and this Kyle Wilson amendment that we're talking about, which is a way of delivering the people's vote, is to support Theresa May's deal, but subject to putting it back to the people in a ratification. But the other thing I will say is, I think the Labour Party has got off lightly tonight, don't you think? What kind of an opposition do we have? This is the thing. Where are are they on the people's vote? What happened? I took a picture of that lobby and they sat on their hands at something that most of their members want, vast majority, over 80%, large proportions of their voters want, and actually is meant to be their own policy. It's not just a shambolic government, it's also a shambolic opposition. You've given your defence of Labour a little earlier, Annie. Just on this one specific point of the of another referendum. Well, uh, uh, Lila has made a point, and I expected to do that. That's fairly obvious. Uh, but if you look at the facts, the the People's Vote campaign themselves uh, said that that was not the right time. We were dealing with several issues last week, and on that day, we were dealing with the issue of extension. That the whole issue of the of the public vote hasn't gone away. And when the People's Vote campaign themselves are saying, don't do it today, and Alistair Campbell, who's hardly uh, 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 a pro-Brexiteer, is saying this is not the right time to do it, Leila's referred to the way in which it will be promoted, and that will be in the week that's ahead of us. That's the right time time to do it. it Because they knew that they would lose, and they did. You're absolutely right, Ian. You you move a, a motion when you think you've got the best chance of winning it. That's politics. Thank you. Um... Comes something when you when a member of uh, 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 Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet prays in aid um, someone who was very close to Tony Blair and ran his affairs. A peculiar times we live in. We do <laughs> in strange times. Oh three seven hundred one hundred four 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 for any answers. And Anita Anand, and we'll go please to our next. Um, I'm Ada Wood and I'm 12 years old. And today I joined thousands of young people all over the UK striking for climate. I want to know why everyone is talking about Brexit when if we don't do something about climate change, how will uh, that now there will not be any food for anyone to legislate over? Ada, can I just ask you, did others go from your school? Um, I'm ironically... Or were you a lone wolf, as it were? Um, I'm home-educated, but... You're, you're um, home-educated? Yes. Ironically. So the question of, of school approval didn't arise. I, I imagine that, that whoever your carer parent is gave their go-ahead. Yes. OK, thank you. Um, Leila Moran. Ada. Well done. Yeah, absolutely. Well done. Listen, I was in Oxford on 
this time last month, and I was with the 2,000 young people in Oxford who striked in Bond Square, and I said to them, listen, I'm here, and I was the only Oxfordshire MP that was there, and I said, I hear you, and I'm going to do something about it. And so literally the next day, I went to the House, and there's a thing, there's an opportunity called the Backbench Business Committee, and I got a debate the first time in nearly two and a half years that climate change has been debated on the main floor of the House. There's been other debates in another place, but on the main floor of the House. Me and Caroline Lucas, we got there, and we did that. And there was three hours' worth of debate, and... Okay, it was on a Thursday afternoon and, you know, more people should have been there, but it was fairly short notice and I don't think we need to blame MPs for that. But I have to say, since then, I was really disappointed with some of the argument with the, with, with the government. They think they've got this. And then I've been asked, like, you know, should they have done it? You know, I'm a former teacher. Should they have stayed in school? I'd much rather, of course, people didn't have to do this. And then I saw the spring statement. And the spring statement, frankly, was rubbish. The only thing that should have happened in the spring statement was they should have stood up and said, we have a climate emergency in this country. That is the only thing that would have done. It's not rubbish. It's not rubbish. Many, many bodies are saying we've got 12 years left before we can turn back the clock on 1.5 degrees of change, of, of, of degrees C. This is critical. And so, Ada, you know what? I didn't want you to go. I wanted to this and this government to have done more, but they haven't, and so I understand why you did. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Environment Minister, Therese Coffey. Well, I really welcome the fact that young people are very energised about trying to improve our environment to tackle climate change. And I welcome that energy, that support in order to do that. And actually, this is an issue which uh, doesn't really, uh, up until the speech I've just heard, um, normally the the Parliament is united on the need to tackle climate change. It's made some difficult decisions. Uh, We are the first country, it's under a Labour government, but with cross-party support to introduce the 2008 Climate Change Act. And actually, since 2010, we've seen our domestic greenhouse gas emissions uh, fall by 23%. We've seen, thanks to the investment made actually by the coalition government on investing in offshore wind and solar, to see the price of that fall around the world. And together, we have been investing billions of pounds in renewable energy, such that last year was the first time where renewable energy actually generated more than half of the electricity in this country. We know that there is still far more to do. Forgive me, not... not it happened once or twice. It, it isn't more than half generally. It's about, it's about 30%, isn't it? Well, last year was the first time, as I say, over the year, it was more than half. Yes. So we're burning less coal. Yes, it was. So there's an element You are the there. Environment Minister. We have to defer. But whether any sources. answers listeners will defer so is that, not quite clear. <laughs> but whether that's about... Uh, uh, sorry, I should have said low-carbon sources. I apologise if I Ah. didn't say that. So that's about nuclear, it's about solar, it's about offshore wind, it's about onshore wind, it's about hydro generation, it's about interconnector elements, Um, and we are tackling the whole issue about fossil fuels. In the spring statement we announced, which may actually become an unpopular policy when it comes into fruition, that uh, from 2025, no new houses will be able to have fossil uh, fuel-generated heat for homes. So we are taking, tackling difficult decisions, whether it's about diesel cars, 
They were seen as the answer to uh, carbon uh, challenge, but actually we recognise the problems they've had. So there's all sorts of things that we're taking, and we will continue to do more, including our international investment. And I'm now become obsessed with mangroves. I'm trying to get them renamed blue forests, but genuinely we are spending more and more of international aid to make sure we preserve them, which are better at, at capturing carbon than the Amazon rainforest. Andy McDonald. Uh, well, congratulations to Ada and everybody else who turned out. I mean, you're, 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 you're leading on this, and, and thank you for doing it, uh, because you're drawing attention to the fact that we are in a crisis. This is the number one issue. This is an existential crisis for the planet. We've only got the one. We've got to look after it, and we are not doing a very good job of it. And I agree with uh, uh, that if we don't rev- uh, address this, we're in deep, deep trouble, and we've got to do it now. But I've got to say, some of the steps that the government are taking are just insufficient. Um, we have Chris Grayling cancelling the electrification of our railways. I mean, you know, we need to decarbonise our transport system. Transport accounts for 29% of, uh, of carbon emissions in this country, and we've got to be serious about it. And a government who uh, removed the exemption from the climate change levy for the renewable industries is hardly uh, a testament to their commitment to this issue. It's the biggest thing that we all face. We've got to be serious about it. Ian Dale. When the first of these climate strikes happened, was it about a month ago, I thought, actually, what an inspirational thing, but I'm going to make myself very unpopular with Greens now, because I think for a Liberal Democrat education spokeswoman to come on this programme endorsing strikes in schools on an issue she happens to agree with, um, I wonder what you would say if it was, a, if it, if it was classes of pro-Brexit 12-year-olds or 15-year-olds that wanted to go on a demonstration. <laughs> and and, when, and when, I, when, I see, when I see footage of uh, 12, 14, 15-year-olds walking through Whitehall chanting, Theresa May is a whore, led by their teachers. I'm sorry, I don't approve of that. Can I say it, Ian? Do we not think that there is an incredible irony for a government that's underfunding schools such that there are some schools now going to four and a half or even four-day weeks, and yet that same government is calling those children truants for the one day that actually they've gone to do something positive? Do you happen to agree with it? Very, very, very briefly, any answers, I'm sure, any, any listeners who want to come in, but isn't it the, the case that in many of the schools, head teachers have not wished their children to go out, but the parents, if they've given their consent and if they take their children from the school between 10 and 2 or whatever the time was and return them, they are allowed to do so but it counts as an unauthorised uh, uh, And then the parents get fined, do they? Because uh, if they it, took them out of uh, class on a holiday, they'd get fined for that. Theoretically. Yeah. No, in practice. It's, it's the law. Seriously. Let's try and so, make them well, never have to do it again. Let's just, yeah, let's just yeah. all agree, shall we? That, that's the, that's the thing all, to do. Let's all have a group hug as well. Can I, have, can I have literally five seconds only from each person on the final question from Maggie Patterson? We may not make it, but let's try. How do the panel switch off from Brexit overload? It's literally a sentence. If you switch off, how do you, Andy? Uh, I, I don't think I've found the off button yet. It just seems to be permanently <laughs> okay. jammed on. Sadly. Layla? I'm a cat person. I love my cat. <laughs> <laughs> Therese? Music, Sudoku, and I thoroughly recommend the Traitors series uh, on TV at the moment. So TV binge watches for me. More articles and more programmes here. Tomorrow afternoon, West Ham v Huddersfield. Come on, you irons! (laughs) 
thank you. And there we, we have to leave it. We should do much more on climate change, I know. Tell us so in any answers and tell us and we'll hang our heads in shame. Meanwhile, say thank you to the Stanix Theatre and University of Cumbria and goodbye. Did you enjoy the podcast? Discover more music, radio and podcasts on BBC Sounds.